You're listening to 91.9 KBCR News. I'm Jessica Greenwell. On Fridays, we speak with former Press Enterprise columnist and longtime KBCR News contributor Cassie McDuff about some of the big stories around the Inland Empire. Good morning, Cassie. Good morning, Jessica. So San Bernardino County has released its report on what went wrong in its response to last year's devastating snowstorms. We've been waiting for this one. Yes, this report confirms many of the conclusions drawn by the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department review released back in September. In fact, this report was due out in September, too, but the consultants working with the county administrative office needed more time, so it was delayed until mid-January. The report cites failures of communication in several areas of shortcomings in a disaster that left many mountain residents trapped in their homes under as much as 11 feet of snow with dwindling supplies of food and medication and inadequate heat. The report said that although some county workers were trained in disaster preparedness, many were not. The county didn't have enough snow plows capable of removing tall drifts, and workers didn't have enough heavy boots and gloves or other winter weather gear to work outside for prolonged periods. So what about the communication failures? Does the county's report go into any additional details on that? Yeah, it goes into more detail on how these communication problems arose. For example, it says there were two separate command structures operating at the same time and not necessarily sharing information with each other. The Emergency Operations Center was supposed to be coordinating the county's response, while the incident management team run by the county fire protection district was supposed to be in charge of boots on the ground, in other words, the folks out in the field. But the two ended up sometimes duplicating each other's efforts and stepping on each other's toes. For example, heavy equipment requested by one department was sent to another department when it arrived, and the department that originally requested it was never told. The report concluded there was little to no coordination between the two command structures. The communication breakdown and the lack of coordination extended to the county's work with Caltrans and CHP and the National Guard, who were all trying to help. There was also a critical delay in activating the public information team, and even when it was activated, team members said they didn't get the information they needed to answer questions from the public. And the same was true with a call center that was set up to field inquiries from the public. Call center employees said when they got the information from the county, it was often outdated. Wow, it sounds like that was a chaotic response. That must have been hard to work with, too. But we do now have some heavy equipment pre-positioned up the hill in those communities. So that's good news. Yes, hopefully lessons have been learned. The county's official statement that accompanied this report said the county intends to use it as a learning and improvement tool. Very good. And next up, Montclair is suing one of its city council members to recover the costs of defending two sexual harassment lawsuits against him. Right. Councilman Ben Lopez and the city of Montclair were sued by two city employees in 2021, alleging that Lopez made unwanted sexual advances towards them. The city settled with the employees last year for $550,000, but the city now says it has spent $700,000 in legal fees defending itself, and now it wants to recover that money from Lopez. So back when the allegations were made, the city hired an outside firm to investigate, and after that firm reported back, the city council censured Lopez and removed him from his committee assignments. That was about all they could do. 
but the city also requested that Lopez attend sexual harassment training on top of the training all public officials receive when they take office. Lopez was given two dates and two locations in 2022 to get that training. As of last week, he still had not taken it. And Jessica, those lawsuits against Lopez by the employees are still pending. By the time the city's lawsuit against Lopez to recover the legal fees gets a hearing, the city estimates it will have spent $900,000 on litigation in these cases. A hearing is not expected until later this year. So what does Lopez say about all this? Well, he did not return several calls seeking comment, but earlier he has accused these cases of being politically motivated. His council seat will be on the November 2024 ballot. And the Temecula City Council will remain short one member rather than appoint someone to fill a vacant seat. Right. The vacancy was created when Councilman Curtis Brown resigned effective January 1st due to a new work assignment overseas. That left four remaining council members to decide whether to appoint a replacement or leave the office vacant until the November election. The council decided to leave it vacant. They want to let the voters decide. So whoever wins November will fill out the remaining two years of Brown's term. That isn't a problem unless the council deadlocks two to two on a vote. Now contrast that with what's going on in the Temecula Valley School District, where the five-member board lost one member when Danny Gonzalez resigned on December 15th, saying he was moving to Texas. Rather than leave the vacancy, the school board accepted applications for an appointment to replace him. Now the controversy is, who will the board be able to agree on to appoint? Gonzalez was part of a three-member voting bloc that passed a number of controversial measures, including a ban on critical race theory and a policy to notify parents if their child identifies as transgender. So the two other board members voted against those controversial measures. Here it's possible the four remaining members could deadlock two to two, even just to try to make an appointment. Yeah, it will be interesting to see if they can come to an agreement. When are they expected to vote? on February 13th. Well, we'll check back in there, I'm sure. And lastly today, UC Riverside students are joining UCLA students to push their universities to kick Starbucks off campus over its labor practices. Right. The students accuse Starbucks of union-busting actions as more and more Starbucks stores make efforts to unionize, especially the baristas, those frontline workers. More than 385 Starbucks have unionized with Starbucks Workers United to push for higher wages, more staffing, and consistent scheduling for workers. So students at UCLA and UCR collected signatures on petitions to ask their campuses to terminate leasing agreements with Starbucks. The students say they want to show solidarity with Starbucks workers so when they graduate they enter a workforce where workers have a say in the companies they work for. Students at Cornell University in upstate New York got their school to cut ties with the coffee chain after it closed all three stores in Ithaca that had unionized. So has Starbucks issued a response regarding this? Yeah, the company actually hired an independent evaluator to take a look at their tactics, and that evaluation said they do not use an anti-union playbook, and Starbucks said it respects workers' rights to unionize. In fact, it says it has drafted a contract to raise California Starbucks workers from $17 an hour starting pay to $20 an hour. Well, we'll keep following this story. Yeah, we'll see what the campuses do. Well, thank you so much, Cassie, for all of this information. We appreciate your reporting, as always.
Thank you, Jessica. Longtime journalist Cassie McDuff helps us out regularly on our Friday morning news wrap, and these reports are posted at kbcrnews.org. This report is made possible with the support of the Southern California News Group, publisher of the Press Enterprise, San Bernardino Sun, Inland Valley Daily Bulletin, and other Southern California newspapers. I'm Jessica Greenwell, KBCR News.